All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There's going to be no review, all right? Because I've now done three, three hours of teaching on this. So um, I think I've gotten everyone hopefully caught up. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is the verse that we've been working on now for two weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Just so that you know the whole reason we're spending all of this time on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It goes all the way back to what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, for our Bible study exercise that, we're doing, that we were doing on Genesis, what, 39, I think. Um, in regards to Joseph and temptation. And you can't talk about the subject of temptation without talking about 1 Corinthians 10.13. So once I brought up 1 Corinthians 10.13 in the Bible study exercise, I'm like, I've got to come up with a better solution to this verse than everyone puts forth. Because in that Bible study exercise for the podcast, I read, I don't know, all kinds of commentaries. We, we, we addressed all kinds of things, and all of them were basically like, hey, you don't have to sin. You can stop sinning. And I'm like, well, clearly I need to go to their church because they figured out something that this church hasn't figured out. And I don't mean just me. I mean you too, right? We haven't all figured this out. So I'm like, there's got to be a solution. So I went to work and went to work and went to work to figure this verse out and think I've come up with the best solution that I can come up with. All right. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let's read it. Take there hath no temptation taken you but such as common demand, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. If you read that verse, it appears to say that you're not going to get a temptation that you can't just say no to, so therefore you should be able to stop sinning and he's going to give you a way to escape. Clearly, that would imply that there could be perfect Christians and there aren't any. All right? So, we realize, hmm, that doesn't make any sense. Now, you go back and look at the book. It's written to a church that doesn't stop sinning. That's a clue, right? Then the chapter is about Israel, who we all know didn't stop sinning. <laughs> okay? So, that, get, that gets us some pretty good clues, right? Everybody agree? That, that gets us some pretty good clues. So we started working on this. And I told you to take a piece of paper and divide it in half. And on one side, what three words did I tell you to write down? Able, escape, endure, right? So when we talk about escaping, uh, enduring, and able, able, enduring, escaping, what? What does it exactly mean? Because we've just been so programmed that we read it in what way? Oh, I can stop sinning. But then we realize we don't stop sinning, so we just live with this contradiction in our brains and nobody ever seems to raise a question. And the reason no one raises a question is because I know that in, I hate this, but it's just, it, within Christianity, it's almost built in. There's just certain things you're just supposed to accept. And one thing that a lot of people don't like within Christianity is raising questions. And you know, in this church, I'm going to raise questions. Not am I going to raise questions. Sometimes I leave, I end the sermon with just giving you questions and no answers. And y'all usually get, don't like that. But it, look, I, I, I've stated this so many times. If you can't question your faith, right, then your faith isn't worth having. A faith that cannot be questioned is a faith not worth having because it's not worth anything. Do you realize if you, if you hold to an idea and you can never accept any challenge or questions to it, you, you know that you're holding on to something that's very weak, that's very flimsy, right? And here's what's weird. The church won't raise the questions, but people outside the church will. And sometimes the best questions I get about the Bible aren't from Christians. It's from atheists and agnostics because they ask good questions. Because Christians are just like, oh, I, can't I can't ask that. No, ask. Struggle. All the time I'll read and what do I say in sermon? It doesn't make any sense to me. Or my famous line, what in the name of bubblegum is that talking about? And it's perfectly okay to say that. It's perfectly okay. I know you say, no, it's sacrilegious. No, it's questions. The disciples weren't afraid to ask Jesus a lot of questions. <laughs> they were always asking him questions, right? Now, sometimes they got rebuked. And sometimes I kind of laugh at you guys when you ask a question, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? So it's okay. 
So we're trying to figure this out. So what do we think this, where the solution lies? The solution lies in the chapter itself. Because in the chapter itself, Paul says, hey guys, I want you to think about Israel. Israel had a supernatural deliverance. Israel had supernatural guidance and Israel had supernatural provision. But in spite of all of those supernatural things, what did they continue to do? They sinned. So then he's like, okay, I'm going to give you Israel as an example. He says that twice. He's going to give them as an example to them. And then he gives them how many examples? Four examples. And all four examples involve the following. Are you ready? Each example involves a common temptation. Everybody got that? Clearly an escape and clearly a way to endure it. Now the thing that, guess what? None of the examples, guess what the, all four examples, guess what's missing in all four examples? What's missing in all four examples? Okay, everybody's saying it differently. They, they, there is no example where they don't sin. <laughs> That's, if you don't see that, then you can't read all of these examples. They sin, they sin, they sin, they sin, and all of a sudden you read 1 Corinthians. Now some people say, well see, they sin, but we don't have to. The only problem is, every time I read about Israel, what do I see? Me! What, every time I read, uh, read about Israel, what do I see? Everyone who's ever come to this church. And you're saying, I'm offended. I'm sorry. It's the truth. Correct? So then that tells me, clearly this can't be telling me that I can't say it. It's got to be telling me the way to to escape, to endure it. So the first example led us to where? I'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You'll go back. Verse 7. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That takes us to Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, you can open it. I'm just going to show you what happened. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 is the story of Israel doing what? They are tempted because Moses is missing. They're worried. They're filled with anxiety and concern. And they ultimately decide to build a golden calf. So we talked about the temptation there. Yes? So they sin. By, by, there's no question about it. They sin. So where is their escape? How do they endure it? What things occur to help them escape God's wrath? Sarah Danzler kept saying that during Sunday school, which was really good. How do they escape God's wrath? Because when they do this, what does God want to do to Israel? He wants to destroy all of them, the entire nation, and start over with Moses. So then what takes place in the chapter? I'm not, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to go through each verse because we did this the last hour. First, the first thing was intercession. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. Everybody got that down? Next, they're made to drink the idol, which is really weird. Third, death, three, what, 3,000 die? Yes. Next, Atonement, and what is atonement, everyone? What's the theological definition for atonement that we're giving everyone? Oh, look at that. That's good. I'm done. I'm, I'm quitting today, right? Y'all got, a, y'all got a theology question? I'm leaving. I'm leaving, okay? Now, that's good, right? Reconciliation between God and man via sacrifice. And then the last thing, chastisement occurs. Now, we looked at all of these things, and then I said, here's what's amazing about this. All of those same things happen for you because of Christ. And we covered this last week, but I'm going to go through them briefly. Everybody ready? All right, I'm going to find my notes here. All right, the first thing I want us to look for, uh, let's look at intercession. All right, Moses interceded on behalf of the people. All right, you ready? Go to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7.25. I'm just going to give you the New Testament verses to verify this. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Everybody there? Wherefore, this is speaking of Christ, if you go back to verse uh, 22, but so much was Jesus made surety of a better Testament, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of Christ, because he continueth 
forever hath an unchangeable priesthood. And remember, Hebrews 7, remember the whole book of Hebrews. I cannot stress this. This book is so misinterpreted by Christians all across the world. Hebrews is always interpreted to be like, oh, you, can you lose your salvation? You can't lose your salvation. How do we interpret the book of Hebrews? It was written to the Jews in 66 AD, historical fact, to warn them that what's about to happen in just a couple of years, 70 AD, and what's getting ready to happen to Judaism? And destroyed. So their entire, when the, when the Bible says there'll be no, no more sacrifice for sin, it's referring to the Jews. There will actually be no more sacrifice for sin because they won't have a priest, they won't have a temple, they won't have a sacrificial system. Right? They won't have anything. I just, I played, yesterday I did a podcast episode about Jews and the Temple Mount where I, uh, there's, there's a group of Jews now who will disguise themselves as Muslims, Right? and will learn Arabic so that they can get onto the Temple Mount and pray. Because they're, they're, ban- they're basically banned from the Temple Mount. Only for certain hours can they go. Well, that just shows that they, they still don't have their temple. There's a big dome sitting where they want the temple to be. They, 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 they have nothing. Hebrews is saying, all of it's going away. But something better is going to be there. So don't go back to Judaism Focus on Christ. And, he, and right here we have the idea that he's going to be a better priest. Why is he a better priest? According to Hebrews 7 right there. Well, according to the verse, he doesn't die. That makes you a better priest because he's never going to go. It's never, you're not, never going to show up and go, where's my priest? Well, he died yesterday. No, he's never going to die. And because he's a priest that never dies, what is, remember we talked about a priest and a prophet? What's the difference between a priest and a prophet? Priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. A prophet speaks to the people, half of God. See, I know this, right? So that's good news, right? And so what does our priest do for us? Wherefore, oh, I love this word. He is, remember the word I gave you? Where does my ability lie? And Christ's ability. He is able to do what? Save them to the... Saving you does what? Provide an escape. Christ is able to, to help me escape what? The wrath of God. Eternal death. Eternal punishment. And how does he do this according to this verse? He ever liveth. That's good. Look, I need, a, I need an ever living priest. I need an ever living priest. I don't know about you. I need an ever living priest. Yes? Okay. And what does he live to do? To make intercession for them. So, how did Israel escape and endure the temptation and their sin through the intercession of Moses. How do you endure temptation in your sin through the intercession of Christ? Amen? I hope someone says amen. That's good news. Right? That's very good news. There's intercession. We, there's far more verses we could go into there, but that, I think that's, that, that establishes it. Agreed? All right, now, let's go back to, what was the next thing they had to do? No, no, there was intercession made. They had to drink. And what did they drink? The golden calf. Now, this is interesting. The golden calf was their sin. They had to drink their sin in order, in a sense, to avoid the wrath of... Oh, that's, that's an interesting picture, isn't it? That's interesting. Because if we go to the New Testament, everybody ready? We go to the New Testament. We're going to find some things. Okay, there's a, a just a number of things about drinking. Go to uh, John. Go to John chapter four. John chapter four. Verse thirteen. 
Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in a, him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This is the idea that we drink what Christ gives and we have everlasting life. Right? So this is, and the idea of drinking would be the idea of our faith in Christ. Okay. There, there's, there's a connection with drinking. I think we can see that. But there, there's other things about drinking. Go to Revelation chapter 21. I'm not going to put them in, a, in the order that I probably should. I'm going to put them out of order, but that's okay. Revelation 21, 6. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end. I will give unto him that a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. This is the idea that drinking is associated with what? Eternal life or with salvation. Right, so far, so good. Go to uh, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And the spirit and the bride say, come, let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whoever will let, let him take the water of life freely. Again, drinking is associated with eternal life. If I, think of it this way. If I drink of Christ and of the water he gives, do I escape the wrath of God? Yes. Right? Do I have the ability to endure my temptations? Yes, because even if I sin, what happens? I am forgiven because nothing can disturb my position before God. Because my position is based off what? Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Imputed, imputed. Just never forget that term, right? That's the whole reason the Protestant Reformation occurred. Between imputed versus an infused. We have an imputed righteousness, okay? Never forget. Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke twenty two forty two. Now Christ gives us a drink so that we can have eternal life, but we don't get that without something taking place. Luke twenty two forty two. Right. So Jesus is in. Uh, if you go to verse thirty nine, as he went to the Mount of Olives, his disciples followed him, and he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. Right. He withdraws from about a stone's cast. He kneeled down and prayed. And what is his prayer at the, such a critical time? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He wants a cup removed. What could this cup be? What could it be referencing? Go to, uh, I believe it's, uh, if I can read my own writing, let me look quickly before I tell you and give you a wrong verse. Yeah, John chapter 18, verse uh, 11. John chapter 18. Now, if you know the story here, the soldiers have come to arrest Jesus. The soldiers have come to arrest Jesus, and who does not like this? Peter does not like this. So Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Peter's like, nope, this is not going to happen. Nope, I'm going to stop this. And look at the rebuke that he receives. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword in unto, into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now this gives us a clue what he's referring to. What's the cup Jesus is referring to? What he's about to endure on the cross. And what did he endure on the cross? The wrath of God. He drank God's wrath so that you can drink eternal life. He drinks the punishment of your sin so that you can drink of his grace freely. You say, well, I'm not completely convinced yet. Well, okay, let's uh, go to Revelation chapter 14. Go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Everybody there? Revelation chapter uh, 14, look at verse 10. If we go back to verse 9 for context, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall 
drank of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. All right? That sounds like really bad news. What is the cup associated with? God's wrath. God's wrath. So for us to escape, what do we need? We need either we can drink it, which means we're drinking God's wrath and we'll suffer for eternity, or someone drink it on our behalf and who drank it on your behalf? Christ. So, how do you escape? The intercession of Christ and the drinking of Christ helps you escape and endure temptation, right? Isn't that good news? Because if I sin, make it very clear, if I sin, is that a good thing? No. Is is there an excuse for it? But what do I know? I've escaped the wrath of it. Whew. That's good news because I sin all the time. Right? Okay, good. Okay, amen. Right? So we've got the intercession. We've got the uh, drink. What else do we need to look at? What, ex- what else happens in Exodus 32, verse 28? Death. Death, right? Now this one, we don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. You can just look up a couple of, ver- look, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, if you need to see one. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. What do we learn in the New Testament about Christ dying? Christ died for our sins. Is that what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 teaches you? Yep, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, in Exodus, 3,000 people die. That's horrible, yes? But those 3,000 people dying... Helps avert what? God's wrath of destroying the entire nation. Christ died to stop all of us from burning for eternity and suffering God's wrath. Does that make sense? So how do we escape and how do we endure? Intercession, drink, and death. What else do we need to look at? Atonement. Atonement. All right. Go to Romans. We can look at a couple of here. Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. Just to look at a couple here. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And then uh, Romans uh, 5.11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. All right? Christ suffers and dies to reconcile us to the Father. He is our atonement. So, how do, let's go through them again. Intercession. Right? What are the things that happen in Exodus 32? There's intercession. There is what? Drink. There is death. Atonement. All of that is fulfilled where? In Christ. And then there's one other thing left chastisement, and do we need to look at this one? Hebrews chapter 12, what does the Bible say? He loves, anyone he, he loves, he will chasten. And we, we experience the chastening of God. That's a good thing, right? We don't like it, but it's a good thing because it's there to, and think about it this way, I would rather see, receive the chastening of God than the wrath of God. Now we perceive sometimes chastisement as wrath. That's not wrath, That's love. Okay? I know we don't always perceive that way because sometimes in our mind, any punishment we see as a negative thing, but this is punishment meant to do what? See, it's always important. Punishment is not just to inflict pain. Punishment is there to, to teach a lesson to move us away from the thing in which we were doing, right? There's supposed to be a teaching involved, a lesson involved in it, all right? So we got all of those. All right, now, go back to 1 Corinthians. The next two are very short, and then the last one is long. All right, so we'll, we'll go through this as quickly as I can. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All right, everybody, so we, we've, we took care of verse 7, yes? Verse 7 is Exodus 32. 
It's an example to us because it shows us how we escape and how we endure. And how do we escape and endure? Through the intercession of Christ, through Christ's drinking, through Christ's atonement, right? Through Christ's death and through Christ's chastisement that comes to, unto us. All right? Everybody see all of that? Okay, next. The next verse is verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Whoa. Something really bad happens here, obviously. Yes? Where does this lead us? Numbers 25. Go to Numbers chapter 25. Go to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. And Israel abode, abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. All right. So, Israel is there, and they, what's the temptation? Do I? Okay. What? The daughters. Okay. Daughters are the temptation. No, obviously physical relationship here becomes the temptation. And clearly here, they're involved with the daughters of Moab, which they are not supposed to be. So now you have intermarriage with an unbeliever. All right. So, and that's a common temptation, right? Common temptation is to not only desire physical intimacy, but desire relationship. That's a common desire. It's sometimes very difficult when that desire is towards someone who isn't a believer or someone that God would, would possibly, from a biblical standpoint, say you cannot marry. It's sometimes difficult because you want what you want. Well, they always say the heart wants what the heart wants, right? The heart rarely wants what God wants. In fact, never, <laughs> right? Because our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, all right? So it's a common temptation. Would everyone agree? Okay. And so then what happens? And, uh, and they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people did eat and bow down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the angel of the Lord was, anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So they marry whom they're not supposed to marry, and then what do they start doing? They start following the wives. It seems like the wives have lots of power in these situations, right? And, and there's something, there's got to be a biblical lesson in this. Solomon married, and he starts bowing down to false gods. It seems for some weird reason, men can't say no to women. Okay, I, I guess, I, guess, I don't know what that is. There's, some, there's something going on here. But the man's like, okay, honey, you want me to worship a false god? I will, right? It's some, I mean, everyone talks about women being weak. It may be men who are the weak ones, right? Because in every biblical case, isn't that what, it's weird how that happens? Honey's like, the wife comes in, look what I got today, a brand new idol. And the man's like, okay, I'll worship it, right? They, like, they never seem to question it in any way, shape, or form, but it's a serious situation. So then what happens? Verse 4. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. All right, now, this, their escape is here. Now, there's lots of dispute about what's going on here. Some believe, now I know there's much dispute here, because some people argue that the book of Psalms speaks of Christ being crucified before crucifixion was ever a thing. All right. However, some people believe what's going on here was crucifixion. All right. Just so that you know that you can look at all the commentaries. Now, the argument is this. They think what happens, there's a bunch of debate back and forth. I don't have too much time to get into this. Some believe the people died, right, or were killed. Then they were crucified simply to be put. They, in other words, the crucifixion wasn't there to kill them. The crucifixion was there to display them. Does that make sense? All right. But if it's crucifixion, then the, the image becomes very interesting, does it not? But either way, they are lifted up to show everyone. So what do we have here? How do they escape? A death and the people who died are placed on display. For everyone to look to. 
That, that's an interesting concept, is it not? This doesn't... Again, I want you to see in every one of these examples, there's at least one thing that doesn't make any sense. Is this the common way of handling these situations? No. This is not the common way. So why does Paul pull from these examples where like, wait, they're drinking an idol? That's weird. Wait, they're, they're crucifying or putting people up on some pole so they're going to look at? That seems odd. I think the reason he borrows from these really interesting examples is because there's a greater idea behind them. So I think we know where to go with this, right? Obviously, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for us, yes. But then I think there's a very interesting verse in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. Probably you all know this verse. John 12, verse 32. Jesus is speaking. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So what is he talking about? That he'll be lifted up. What is he referring to? Look at the very next verse. What does the next verse say? He said this signifying what death he should die. He's going to be lifted up in crucifixion. So how are we saved? How are we, how do we escape? How do we endure? Someone died and being lifted up, we look to him and that's where we find our hope and our salvation. They had to, to avoid the wrath of God. Now, plenty of them still die. A lot of people die in that numbers passage, right? I mean, what was the total number again? 320,000, some crazy number of people die. It's insanity. But who, what does it happen? The entire nation is not wiped out. The entire nation is not wiped out. I got to continue to remind you of that. Because some people say, where's the escape? The escape is the entire nation isn't destroyed. So there's the second one. Oh, 24,000? Okay, yeah, we get into the whole... Yeah, we get into the numbers differences. Yeah. So then, like, this is in one day how many dies, but the totality of the time is a larger number. Okay, yeah, everybody understands that. Okay, all right. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for bringing that up. All right, so we've got the Exodus 32 passage. We've got the Numbers 25. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. What's the next one that's alluded to? 1 Corinthians 10. Yes, we'll read this here. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. This is Numbers chapter 21. Now we know what happens here, right? Well, go back to Numbers 21. What's their temptation? We've got to uh, identify the temptation in Numbers 21. We've got to identify the temptation. All right, Numbers chapter 21. All right, we see where the judgment takes place, right? Everybody see where the judgment starts taking place? Right, go to verse 5, if you'll notice. Verse 4, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Discouragement. Does discouragement is a temptation? Anybody else ever experience it? Yeah. Because when you get discouraged, what do we typically come with our discouragement? Grumbling, complaining, turning, okay, stop thinking about God. Verse 5, and the people spake against God. What do we have a tendency to do when we get discouraged? Has anybody ever spoke against God? Now, maybe you're more spiritual than me, but sometimes I complain. God, what are you doing? Why did you do this? God, why did you do that? I, I, I've had a tendency to do that. And against Moses, where well, they always got to blame Moses, right? Wherefore have you brought us up out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? Like, did you bring us up out here just to die? In other words, God, you don't know what you're doing. Moses, you don't know what you're doing. Have you ever been there thinking that you know better than God? I know y'all think you know better than me, so I, that's, you're, you're already used to that part. For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Hey, you don't know where you're going, and you stop at the worst restaurants on the way. Right? Because we don't like the food, and we don't like the direction. Okay? That's common. Right? 
Have you ever complained about the food? Have you ever complained about the direction? I've complained about all of those things. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. And then what's the solution? Take a serpent, place it on a pole. That's where our, and in the military, I had the medical badge that I would wear, and that's the medical badge, the serpent on the pole, right? To look to it for what? To be healed, to escape. Yes? Now, everyone knows that this, there's not even a question here, right? We know what this is to picture. How do we know what this is to picture? Jesus himself uses it. John, and again, is this another weird example? How many times do you, they, in the Bible, do you see people putting a serpent on a pole and you're like, look to that and live? This is, every example is bizarre. That's got to tell you something hermeneutically. Like, like I'm, not, I'm not grabbing these examples. Paul's the one using these examples. So they take the snake, they put it on the pole, and they look, go to John chapter 3, just so that you know that I'm not making it up. I think you already knew this, but John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 12. I'm going as fast as I can. John 3, verse 12. If, if I have told you earthly things... And ye believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to the heaven, but he that cometh down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Guess what? What do you look to in temptation? Christ lifted up. How do you escape? There is forgiveness. There is eternal life. Can you be ever totally destroyed because of your sin? No, you cannot. Is that, not, is that good news? In fact, if you think about it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 really is teaching eternal security of the believer more than it's teaching you can be sinless. It's teaching that you will always escape God's wrath because God has made you able in His Son to escape it and to endure it. That's good news. Now, we have the last one to look at. This one is long, and I'm going to have to do my best to go through this. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to have to do a lot of summarizing this one and not be able to go through every detail of the story, but that's okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What's the next story? Verse 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, that already tells you what the temptation was. Murmuring and complaining, which they were very good at, yes? And, okay, you, you, you do have to, you, ha, you almost have to laugh at sometimes. Go to Numbers chapter 16, that's where the story takes place. Numbers chapter 16. And the reason I kind of laugh is sometimes you'll, you'll, as a parent, maybe you'll try to discipline your child and you discipline them for something and then a week later they're doing the very thing that you just disciplined them for and you're like, what is wrong with you? Right? Well, guess what? Israel is the same way. How many times do they have to be receive some horrible judgment and then they turn around and do the exact same thing and you're like, what is wrong with Israel? And then you realize, same thing is wrong with us. No matter how many times, we end up sometimes doing the exact same thing over and over and over. So look what happens. Numbers chapter 16. But there's a rebellion here with Korah, Dathan. There's all this, this rebellion, the judgment upon the rebels, all of this. God threatens to destroy all of Israel in Numbers chapter 16, verses 20. Once again, he's going to destroy everybody. Please note, that, that's common in these stories. God's going to destroy everyone, but they escape. They escape because you, you've got to find that escape from 1 Corinthians 10 here, right? They, they've got to, how do they escape? Not everyone dies. You say, well, someone died, but not everyone. There's, that's an escape. At least that there's a connection there, okay, right? So then we go through this. God brings punishment. And then look at verse 44. Numbers chapter 16, verse 44. 
All right? There's a lot going on here. There's so much going on here. But okay, verse 44. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among the congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment, and they fell upon their faces. In other words, I'm getting ready to destroy all of them. There's a lot of threats of destruction in this chapter. Okay? There's lots of threats of destruction. So, what, what do we need to look for now? How do they escape? How do they escape this? Now, I'm going to go back to my, more I break this down, all right? So we have the rebellion. Everybody sees that. There's the threat. Now, here's, this is interesting in what takes place. We'll start in verse 40, uh, that's uh, number 16. Let's go to verse 44. He's going to destroy all of them. Look at verse 46. And Moses said unto Aaron, stop right there. Remember on the words I gave you? High priest, there's the high priest. There's Aaron, he's the high priest. That, that's, that's a good thing. But this is weird what happens here. This makes no sense to me. This is a, I told you, every one of these examples, something doesn't make any sense. This is bizarre. Look what happens. So Aaron, take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar, put on incense, go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. Here's what makes no sense. The atonement there is not the offering of a sacrifice. It's the offering of incense. That's weird to me. That doesn't normally happen. What's usually required for an atonement? Sacrifice. Death of an animal. That's, so immediately I'm like, something's not, th- this is another one of those interesting examples. So let's go through what this all pictures. Everybody ready? All right. So here, for this to take place, let me give you everything that, that, that is a, that's needed for them to escape. A high priest, the censer, everybody know what the censer is? It's a vessel which incense was presented on the golden altar. All right. Okay, and then you have incense itself, which serves as the atonement. All right, now, let's apply all of this so that we can see this. All right, first of all, what is the high priest picture? Hebrews chapter 4. Christ is our high priest. We have a high priest. Amen? They needed a high priest. We needed a high priest. Judaism needed a high priest. We need a high priest. We need a high priest who can offer a perfect sacrifice. He does that. We need a high priest who can intercede for us. He does that. We, all right, he does all of the things the high priest. That's Hebrews 4. You can just write down the references 14 through 16 and Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. All right? Everybody, everybody got that? Okay. Now, uh, the incense was presented on the altar. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. I do want to look this one up. Hebrews chapter 7. We're almost done. Hebrews chapter 7. I believe it's verse... Yes. Um, because the, the, uh, what does incense typically picture? Prayer. Right? Prayer. So in a roundabout way, guess what's going to kind of serve as an atonement for them? The incense, which pictures the prayer of our high priest, which go back to Hebrews chapter 7. We've already looked at this. And they truly, verse 23, were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There you have it. We have the high priest. We have the intercession. The incense, everything there is pictured in Christ. We could go through everything in Hebrews to show you all of that. All right? So here's how we can summarize this. You ready? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that we're able, we can escape and endure it. We know that we don't have the ability to stop sinning. We know that. We know that, we, that there's not a way to escape every sense that, that we never sin because we keep sinning. And how do we endure it? We don't quite understand. But we do know this. 
that if I look to the examples provided by Paul in the preceding verses, it describes the people who did what? Kept sinning. However, there was an escape for all of them. And that escape was something done, in a sense, for them or upon them by God using other things. Well, guess what? All of those things picture what Christ does for us. So how do we escape? What's the simple answer? Through the work of Jesus Christ is how we can endure and how we escape. Without Christ, we will experience the wrath of God. That's the only way to understand 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The only way. So now I want you to write down the following points and I'm done. Here we go. Anybody got any questions about any of those? I had to go through them quickly, but I want you to make sure you have those down. Right? And I don't want you to think that I'm reaching on those because the hermeneutical clues are these. I want to make sure you understand the hermeneutical clues that led to this. He says twice that these are examples, which leads to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The four examples all contain something that's weird. Drinking, idols, they're lifted up like some kind of crucifixion. What is that? Right? An atonement made with incense? All of a serpent on a pole, all of them have at least one element that makes you stop and go, that doesn't make any sense. Which gives me the clue that it's serving as a greater picture. And we know obviously one of them serves as a greater picture because Jesus himself uses it. Yes? So we know, and Paul himself says these are examples. How we typically, this is what we typically do. You've been in church. Hey, Israel is an example You don't follow their example. Don't sin. Is that how it's typically preached? And everybody sits in church and says, Amen. I'm not going to follow Israel's example. I'll stop sinning. And then before you get home from church, you're already yelling at your kid in the back seat and yelling at your husband and probably already sinned before you got home. But no one ever stops and goes, Well, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. Pastor said I can stop sinning. No, what? The lesson should have been, no, Israel's your example that you're going to keep sinning, so how do you escape? God has to give you the escape, and it points to Jesus Christ. So here are the points I want you to write down. Everybody ready? Never forget the following. Number one, the sinful nature remains. You can look at the Westminster Confession of Faith or our, our Confession of Faith for this church, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and guess what it tells you? The sinful nature remains even in those who are regenerated. We do not believe in the eradication of the old man. Guess when the old man will be eradicated? When you experience glorification. Now the old you is just as much present as it was. I wish it would go away. I don't like the old me. Okay? I don't. I don't like the old you. Right? But it's still there. I don't like it, but never forget it. I, see, sometimes we convince the world that, hey, we're Christians now. We stop sinning. And then they look at you and go, no, you don't. You're a hypocrite. We would not be accused of a hypocrite if we would let the world know we're not saying that the old us is gone. It's still very much present. We're still going to sin. Now, I don't like making an excuse Because I know sometimes we'll say, well, no one is perfect, we're just forgiven. That is true, but you got to be careful because it almost sounds like we're making an excuse. We're not making an excuse for our sin. It has to be confronted, it has to be dealt with, and it's ugly, and I hate it, and I wish nobody sinned, including me. But all we can do is, all we can do is say, I've messed up, it's my fault, I take responsibility, and then do everything you can. Remember, Christianity is not about making sinless people it's about, it's about redeemed people who we strive against that sin. That's how come the church has to be better. At, sometimes we're good at condemning it. Sometimes we may even be good at somehow punishing it. We're not very good at restoring people. Right? we just like, oh, you messed up. You're done. No, there's got to be restoration somewhere. Right? It's just weird. David murdered someone and committed adultery, but yet God used him to write the write scripture. And then people say, well, well uh, uh, no, 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 no. He, he received punishment. He wasn't able to build the temple. That means he stopped, he couldn't minister anymore. But Solomon built the temple who took David's adultery and said, 
watch me. So, so you're like, David didn't build the temple. See, that proves that if you commit that sin, you're done. You can never minister again. Well, Solomon could continue to minister because we say a, a proverb a day keeps the devil away. Yeah, written by a serial adulterer. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we can go through all of that. So I'm just saying that, that we, there's got to be restoration. There's not excuse. Restoration is not excusing. Restoration is an acknowledgement that we are all sinners. But we have to be, we have to be, I don't want anyone to walk out of here going, he's saying just commit any sin you want. I am not saying that. All right? Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not saying that. Right? It's wrong when sin occurs. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's, we get, we, we're so shocked when it happens. Right? If all of a sudden we get it, we find out that Bobby was, you know, under the underpass of North First drunk on a Friday night. I mean, oh, I can't believe it. Well, we shouldn't excuse it, but we could possibly understand it because guess what? Bobby still is a sinner. It's weird. He, there's a hundred sins he could commit that nobody would even blink an eye at. But there's certain sins. Get that gun. I mean, we're in Texas, okay? We don't do crucifixions here. We're like, we're shooting you at you know, sundown, right? That's it. That's the end of you, Bobby. Right? Now, I'm not saying that we say, well, Bobby, you're a sinner. It's okay. But you've got to like, at the same time, we've got to understand it, right? It's hard to find that balance. Either we go to excusing it to shooting the person. There's got to be a biblical balance somewhere. And the biblical balance starts with never forget that guess what he is. Guess what you are? And I'm good. Okay. All right. So I'm joking. All right. The sinful nature remains. Number two, there can never be sinless Christians. There never can be. There never will be. Stop giving the idea that there is. There hasn't been in 2,000 years. There's never going to be a sinless Christian. I know you're not going to be shocked by this. There's never going to be a sinless pastor. Now, look, I wish when I was a young, when I, when I was a young pastor, I wanted, to, I wanted to be like, I'm going to be sinless and the people will always look to me and I'll be the greatest example there ever was. And then I realized, man, that's harder than I thought, right? Especially that you got to deal with people, right? That means, yeah, I got to deal with your sins, which then can make me sinful. And then my sin can make you sinful. You, we get the idea, right? In other words, it's, it's, not, it's not possible. Number three. I want you to never forget the confusion that arises from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is a confusion that arises. Look, let's be honest. It's confusing. Is it not to me? Am I the only one who thinks it's confusing? All right, here's God. He's, gonna not, he's only going to give me temptations I can handle. But then he gives me a temptation that I sin. Well, didn't he know that I was going to sin? And if he knew I was going to sin, wouldn't that demonstrate that I'm not able so then why did he give me the temptation? It's confusing, but it's not confusing in this sense. He gives me the temptation. May even know that I'm going to fall. But he's going to use it for what purpose? To purify, to, con- to humble. S- sometimes the greatest, I hate this, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying run out of here today and go commit 50 sins. Okay, But sometimes the greatest lessons you learn spiritually is when you're on your face in the pigsty 50 miles away from the father's house. Sometimes that's when you realize, man, whew, I made a mess here, right? Sometimes that's when you learn. Sometimes you learn. It doesn't mean excusing it, but sometimes God brings the very temptation knowing what's going to happen because through that, there's going to be lessons. There's going to be purging. There's going to be maturity. There's going to be growth. I hate to say it, sometimes I've learned more lessons in my mess-ups than I've done in my successes. I wish it wasn't the case. I wish I could learn without messing up. Israel never did. They, they learned in their mistakes, right? And sometimes they didn't even learn. There. So just understand there's confusion that arises from 1 Corinthians 10. Number four, two more to go. My ability is limited. Please note that even if you say that as a Christian you have the ability to stop sinning, Every Christian knows that you don't have the ability to stop sinning completely. 
So any ability we talk about is a limited ability. So it's weird that Christians are like, oh, no, you have the ability to stop sinning. And I'm like, well, how come you have it? And I never get a good answer. So clearly any ability you promote is a limited ability. How come we never catch on to that? You can stop sinning, but you won't do it perfectly. Well, didn't you just limit the ability? It's always this weird thing. Number five, the last one. A different way to understand things like new creation, able, and bear is required or we end up misapplying the scriptures. We need a new understanding. And a new understanding of a new creation is simply to understand it based off our position and based off the fact the way I'm supposed to see someone. And when I talk about my ability and my being able to escape and being able to endure, I understand that in Christ. Christ is able to save me. My ability is found in him. My escape is found where? In what Christ did. How do I endure it? Through Christ. That is how we have to understand these things. All right. Any questions? Yeah, I'll just go through all those again. Uh, a, a, a different way to understand things like a new creation, able, bear, and escape is required. We need a new way of understanding those things. And it shouldn't be a new way. It just has to be a way that makes sense with the text. Right? Any questions? Any questions? Oh, okay. I thought it, I thought it was like 1230 and people were about to crucify me. Okay, but all right, it's only 1213, so it's not horrible. Okay, all right. All right that's, that's somewhat normal. Right? All right? So just let's just read 1 Corinthians 1013 and we'll stop. Or you probably have it memorized. And I love the way verse 14 comes in. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And I love this. Now that we understand this verse, right? The very next verse clearly implies the struggle's never going to stop, because he immediately starts in the next verse and tells them to do what? The battle against idolatry is as old as Israel. In fact, it's far older than Israel, but let's just say in this context, it goes all the way back to Israel. And guess what? The the struggle with idolatry is going to continue in the church of Corinth. And guess where it still continues? Right here in Victory Baptist Church, right here in Ovalo, Tuscola, wherever, and everyone listening online, it's still there. And guess what's going to happen in your idolatry? You're going to sin over and over and over. I want you to stop and I want you to try to resist it. But what's the only hope? Christ is your only hope. His intercession. Him drinking the wrath of God on your behalf. His atonement. His death. Chastisement. All of those things. He's our high priest. All of the things that we looked at, Christ fulfills all of them perfectly. That's your hope. That's all you can cling to. And you can't cling to what you do. You've got to cling to what he did. Right? Please note, your assurance of salvation, I know it's common in the evangelical world to tell you to look at yourself and test yourself to see if you're saved. Look to Christ. All right? Your practical righteousness can never be used as proof of an imputed righteousness. It's imputed. That's the whole reason we're not Catholics. They believe in an infused righteousness. An infused righteousness makes you righteous. An imputed righteousness declares you to be righteous even though you're not. I'm righteous, not because I am practically, but because I am positionally. Therefore, no one can lay a charge against me in my position. In my practice, you can. And I need to repent of that and work on that. Remember, the whole Christian life is summarized this way. The Christian life is the never-ending process of trying to live out practically what is true positionally. That's your Christian life. You're trying every day to live out practically what is true positionally. And you will never do it perfectly until you are in the presence of God. And, then, and guess what's going to be required for it to happen in eternity? 
this has got to go. This has got to be changed. Why does it have to be changed? Because it's still corrupted. That means I can't be perfect. Glorification proves that. When people say, oh, I believe in the eradication of the old man. If the, uh, if the eradication of the old man occurs, I wouldn't need a new body. I, wouldn't need an, I, would be, I would be good to go. Other than, I guess you could say, never dies. But you could just make me not die, right? But no, I need a new body because I've got to get rid of the old nature. I've got to get rid of that thing. And I've got to carry it around all the way up there. I've got to carry it around. Wherever you go, you go through the airport. What's that? That's the old man. Okay. Right. They put you through the radar. What's that? You go to the hospital, get an, uh, an x-ray. What, what is that? Oh, that's the old man. Well, could you get rid of that thing? No, it's got to live with me. It's a tumor that will never go away. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, this is, I know that some people will not understand or, or maybe have struggle with what we've talked about, but I hope everyone sees that it's according to your word and that it gives us an understanding that is, I believe, biblical and I believe is consistent with everything we read in the Bible. I hope that we would meditate on these things, struggle with them, question them, and if we need to do any more clarifying on the clarification on this, Lord, I'm more than willing to do that. And I hope everyone understands that. I hope everyone who hears this online understands that they can email. And we, I'm more willing to discuss this and try to help people figure this out so that we have a correct understanding that does not lead us to discouragement, depression, and wanting to depart from the faith. But this will actually lead, lead us to clinging to your son and hope that we can rejoice, that we can glorify you, that our salvation is absolutely guaranteed and assured because of what your son did for us. Let us hope in that, cling to that, and it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,